Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode will be discussing the first film in the Men in Black series, Men in Black. Spoiler alert, we will be discussing every part of the film, so if you haven't seen it or if you want to watch it and get a refresher, you should go do that now and then come back and listen to us. colleagues. Say hi. I'm Paula Sizek. Dr. Kim Perkins. Um, We're members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that helps leaders align company culture to strategy. Every month we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't, and most importantly we talk about the simple tools they, and you our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. If you haven't seen Men in Black in a while, here's the synopsis. After a government agency makes first contact with aliens in 1961, alien refugees begin living in secret on Earth, mostly disguised as humans in the New York metropolitan area. A secret agency known as the Men in Black, or MIB, polices these aliens, protecting Earth from intergalactic threats and using memory-erasing neuralizers to keep alien activity a secret. Agents have their former identities erased and retired agents are neuralized and given new identities. We join the story when a new agent, Jay, joins the team. Jay's first day on the job, an alien illegally crash lands on Earth and kills a farmer named Edgar to use his skin as a disguise. After learning about Edgar's death in a tabloid magazine, Jay and Kay investigate the crash site and conclude that Edgar's skin was taken by a bug, a species of aggressive cockroach-like aliens. Fast forwarding a bit, Jay and Kay find the bug, stop his evil plan, and save the world, galaxy, etc. As they wrap up their adventure, Kay tells Jay that he's been training a replacement, not a partner, and has Jay neuralize him so he can retire from MIB. Aw, bittersweet ending. Um, So every episode, we talk about the film in a similar way. We talk about the five domains of a company. So we're going to start with environment. Those are basically the conditions around the company. Then we'll go to purpose, which is the reason why the company exists. Then we'll go on to strategy, which is the choices or trade-offs that the company is making, um, the strategic direction, basically. Um, Then we'll dive into structures. How do we divide the resources? What kinds of teams exist in the company? And lastly, we'll talk about systems, which is basically the piece that influences behavior inside an organization. And we're specifically going to be talking about just MIB in this episode. So starting with environment, what do you guys think? What 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 um, is top of mind for you? Well, first of all, I loved this movie simply because it had New York in the mid '90s, right? This movie <laughs> came out in 1996, which was pretty much peak Will Smith. It was just after his success in Independence Day, and he was basically the most charismatic, fun actor that you could have in a summer blockbuster such as Men in Black. So this was his uh, second experience actually defending the United States and, and the world from aliens. So um, I love that it's set in New York, and it's actually really important to the whole movie because one of the big themes that we're talking about is this idea of immigration, right? All of these aliens from all across the universe are coming and hiding out in New York. And New York has traditionally been a point of immigration, right? It's got Ellis Island. That's where 
immigrants to the United States first come. So there's already this idea that it's a really diverse, mm -hmm. dynamic environment. It's and yeah and, yeah, and you never know exactly who you're going to run across. Yeah. Yeah, I read that that was the director's idea, which I think is really smart, that New Yorkers wouldn't be surprised that aliens lived among them because there's so much variety already that it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Right, it's part of their cultural identity to be jaded and not be shocked by anything any individual does. So. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you started Paula with how you felt about the movie. Kim, what about you? Would you? I you really had a good time watching this after not having seen it for... 20 years or whatever it is <laughs> I thought it held up remarkably well actually and um some we were you know when I was watching it in my house we were also talking about how it was the practical effects that made it hold up so well because unlike a lot of other similar movies that were doing really some not very good by our today's standard CGI mm -hmm. this one uh was you know uh, much more practically based and it looked great yeah, yeah, I agree. I feel like I haven't watched it since I was a kid. Totally held up for me. The practical effects were really fun. It's really effective. It's, like, very gross in a lot of parts, and I remember a lot of the, that imagery from when I was a kid still. Um, and I think the way the organization runs kind of, kind of holds up as well, but we can get to that in a minute. Actually, I wanted to jump in. This movie is actually a story about recruiting and onboarding. I couldn't believe it when I totally. watched it. Uh, <laughs> totally. It was certainly not the first thing that stuck out to me when I watched it yeah. as a kid or even when I watched it maybe, I don't know, five or ten years ago. But this is all about how do you find people to join your organization? How do you onboard them? How do you teach them the things? And then what happens when people are ready to move on to another organization or they're ready to retire? Mm -hmm. So I just thought it was pretty remarkable. You see essentially three days in the life of this organization, but it is a condensed version of the onboarding experience. It's a yes, it, it's, I think totally. that's a great insight. It's a, it's a condensed version of employees' careers from beginning to end. Yeah. Who knew that this was going to be an HR movie with special effects? <laughs> but I feel like that what we've realized is that the more we watch movies through this lens for work of fiction, the more films are about work in, in different aspects. But you guys just recorded the Fight Club episode, and that was all about work as well. So, yeah, I it's mean, been interesting to find out. We're biased. We are picking movies True. that are about work. True. Yeah, <laughs> and we tend to see work everywhere because that's what we do. Yeah. Um, so let's zoom back out. So talking about the environment, what is what are the conditions surrounding this company? So what, the main thing surrounding the company is that, I mean, you really can't talk about it without talking about the secrecy angle, mm. is that they have to operate, they're, they're surrounded by people who don't know the truth about what's going mm -hmm. on in the universe. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and so to that point, too, the other condition is that aliens are real and they exist around us and they're everywhere yes that's a huge condition in, in which this company operates it's also a very positive take on aliens like yes the the world is almost destroyed and there's bugs that are out to get us but i've just been reading three body problem which is a sci-fi novel but it takes a much bleaker view mm -hmm. of human civilization and how it responds in reaction to coming across alien civilizations. Whereas this, and again, I'm going to say it's it's a 90s film. <laughs> it has just this general positive uh, 
It has an updateness. It's like, yeah. of course we would welcome them and make it everything. I, right. I, I think there's a line in there about all the, the, everybody's just trying to get through their day, whether they're an alien or mm-hmm. a human. So. Yeah. And it's very matter of fact, like, of course, there's always going to be an alien that's trying to, like, blow up Earth. And that's what we do. We're here to make sure that doesn't happen. But aside from that, we're just kind of maintaining the status quo and things are generally fine. The other thing that sticks out to me about this is how much technology plays a role in everything. Mm-hmm. Technology is everywhere and and facilitates so many every so many different things. They have advanced alien technology, and yet their cell phone is yes. essentially <laughs> a giant old. It's not quite the Nokia brick. It's a little bit fancier than that. Um, At least the aliens texted them. I yeah, thought that was a instead of calling. <laughs> there was a really great moment where they are looking around the laboratory and seeing all the the technology of Mm -hmm. the future. And at one point, they hold up a really teeny tiny CD, and they say, ah, this is going to replace CDs. And I thought, if only you knew. (laughs) (laughs) So great. Yeah, so the other um, condition is that it doesn't really seem like there's any competition for MIB specifically. Um, There could be other similar organizations on other planets, but in general, they're not competing with another organization. They're the only ones. That's a good point. They're, yeah, they don't really have any... Their their competitive set is not there. Nobody's trying to shut them down. Yeah. Um, they get to operate pretty freely. It is a monopoly. And we're going to... I'm going to get all into the <laughs> secrecy and the monopoly, <laughs> but that that's going to come later in the discussion. But no, that that's true. They are operating in secrecy, and they are operating as... The only game in town. And I'm going to say later that that has a lot to do with their structures and with their strategies. Ooh, all right. I can't wait. Yeah, can't wait to get into it. <laughs> um, are we ready to move on to purpose? All right. Yes. So for purpose, um, one thing that stuck out to me is, like, I, I mentioned this a little bit, but it just seems like their purpose is really to keep things in stasis. It's not like we're going to get rid of all wrongdoing forever and make sure that earth is like completely protected by building this army in the MIB it's more just like we need to make sure that generally things are okay and when the real baddies come we'll make sure that they don't overthrow us but aside from that we're just keeping the peace yeah it's pro-social but it's kind of like this paternal Mm pro-social where it's like we know better than the population so we're just going to keep the status quo we're going to protect people it's for the good of everybody but we're we are the adults in the room here. Yeah. Have you explained what you mean by pro-social before on the podcast? I should probably explain pro-social. What is it, Kim? <laughs> oh, Tell <pro-so-> us. Excuse <laughs> me. Dr. Kim. <laughs> so um, pro-social basically means that it's for the good of everybody. It's for the good of the group. Mm-hmm. As opposed to antisocial, which is definitely detracting from the good of the group. But there's, you know, and so this applies to, you know, actions can be pro-social, personalities can be pro-social, and also just motivation for doing something can be pro-social. So you could do it because it does good for others, and that's pro-social motivation, as opposed to doing it, um, you know, extrinsic motivation where you're getting paid to, or intrinsic motivation where it's just because you like it. Right. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of their work is for the good of others. Like, even... They do a bit of, like, refugee placement to people who don't, or aliens that don't have a planet or a home to go to. They give them a home on Earth. And they they put up with a lot of really icky conditions, often involving a lot of entrails. (laughs) They're really jaded. So that's maybe what I love Mm. about this movie. I mean, they are witnessing amazing things. They are among the select few that know... There is more, right? They actually say, I used to just look at stars and they were stars, and mm-hmm. now you know that there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're burned out. Maybe they've seen, they've seen too much. 
And as a result, there's, there is a contrast between all of the wonderful, amazing, futuristic, eye-opening things that they experience on a daily basis and the rea uh, reality of work, which is, you know, you just gotta get in there and clean up some entrails and make sure the paperwork is right. So there's a good contrast between Kay, who's been in it for a long time and is ready to get out, essentially, mm -hmm. and Jay, who is experiencing this for the first time and brings a sense of wonder with him mm -hmm. to this new environment. Yeah, this culture is, that's, that's a great point, that this culture is not big on awe. I keep thinking in terms of the environment, mm -hmm. how much there, it's, um, it, it looks like uh, early 60s decor, like the, the space program, mm -hmm. you know, everything's all this like mid-century modern and they've yeah. got all those guys in their short sleeve uh, white shirts with their black ties, like, you know, the old NASA pictures from the space, from the moonshots. Well, it makes sense because... This organization was founded in 1961, right? It's kind of frozen there, too. Yeah, we're looking at an organization that hasn't evolved, despite the fact that the environment has changed and things are different than how it used to be. And I, again, can't wait to talk about that. I've got a couple bullet points. <laughs> um, that's it. I do want to point out that uh, Jay... No, Jay. K. K. I get I get them confused. Don't know why. Um, but and K is Tommy Lee Jones. J is exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so at one point, J. Will Smith is actually really stressed out because, of course, they're trying to save the universe from the galaxy from destruction. But K is pretty laid back about it. And he actually says, "You know, you need to learn to take some joy in your work. You're never gonna make it if you don't." <laughs> If you don't stay a little bit calmer under under pressure. So, again, even though he's the one who is jaded and maybe burned out, he's also the one who recognizes that this is this is the job mm -hmm. and this is, yeah. is what we have to do on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, anything else there before we move on to strategies? The purpose environment. I think we got it. Nice. So for strategies, um, what you guys got? All right, first thing that came to my mind is total dedication, even over free time. So when you're an employee of the Men in Black, you, as part of the bargain, have to give up everything else outside of, of your work. You, There's a really great quote in there about becoming the company man and what that means. And essentially it means yeah. you don't exist outside of this organization. Yeah. And, okay, that might be necessary if you are literally saving the world from aliens. But I wanted to talk with you guys about what that means in the real world, right? How much right does an organization have? Everybody says, oh, we're family mm -hmm. and we want you to give 110%. But what right does an organization have to you? I feel like that is such a relevant question today for the, the com some of the companies we work with. You know, we've had people say things like we want to recruit people who are going to treat this like, um, you know, Olympic athletes, where you give up everything and sacrifice everything for this job. You yeah. know, we talk about people, we've heard stories from people at Amazon talking about, um, you know, how hard they work to shave 20 minutes off of a delivery time, you know, and then thinking about the toll that this may, it has got to take on them personally and biologically to be all about it. And also, at the same time, we think about the thrill and exhilaration that can come when you're really involved in your work mm -hmm. and these things can become very meaningful and it, and it can take the shape of a personal quest 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, like, a really recent example is the video game Red Dead Redemption came out this week, and there was an article two weeks ago that talked about how many hours they put into it, and each engineer worked, like, 80 hours a week, basically, to get this out the door. And it took them five years, a ton of rewrites, but once they got to the finish line, everyone on the internet is talking about how good this game is. And it's not the same kind of purpose as, like, saving the world, but it also, it is, It I would assume it feels very purposeful if that is your life's work as a video game engineer. Yeah, this you know, is that kind of intrinsic motivation you're talking mm-hmm. about where it's shaped where where your work is shaped like a game and therefore you have this motivation mm-hmm. to keep playing and keep playing, keep playing better. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about companies defining their purpose and making sure that it's meaningful for the employees, right? That you are giving them interesting challenges that they are able to find solutions which have applications that make people's lives better and that could be anything from curing cancer to yeah making a great video game that people like but when you are motivated by intrinsic motivation i i wonder if there's there's a line right because in theory you could spend all of your time working on this game yeah it's a pressure i feel myself working with Nobel, there's always something more that you could do. There's right. always something mm-hmm. new to create or one more email that you could send. So organizations that do have purpose, I think, also have a responsibility to let their employees know that's that's enough. Yeah. You, you, you need to still have people talk about work-life balance mm-hmm. or people talk about work-life blend, what have you. But if you are always working all the time, eventually you become limited and you do become burnt out, which, and, tying it back yeah. to this film, is exactly where we are. <laughs> right, right. And it, this part, it does have a negative effect on the culture when people are going that hard all the time because you get into, it ends up made that you, you know, you're, you're so involved in the game and that's wonderful in some ways, but it also gives you blinders and you have a very hard time stepping out of the game to see what the effects of your actions may be. Yeah. And there's a bit of, um, we've worked with cultures where when you start with a culture of like your praise for being busy, that's what people work towards too. They, they keep talking about how busy they are and how full their calendars are, even if that's not really the case or that's not really how their work is stacking up too. Totally. And one thing while we're talking about the, that aspect of the culture, one thing that really stuck out to me is how much freedom the agents have. Mm. they can pretty much show up. We're thinking about what gets rewarded in this culture. The agents, at least, get to do pretty much do as they see fit. Very there's, true. There's not, like, a protocol. They're not... Pull, they could, this could be a giant government bureaucracy yeah. where they say when, you know, in this situation, we have to follow code XB725, yeah. right? And that's not how they go. They take a look at it. They say, I don't think that's what's really going on. And then they do something else. And I think that that really feeds the... That is part of what makes this job worthwhile enough that you are willing to give up the other aspects mm. of your life for it. And there's there's an interesting paradox there because internally you have all of the freedom that you could want. Yes, there is a boss, but you pretty much are autonomous as an individual. If you screw up, you just flashy thingy everybody, and <laughs> that's <who> true. Cares? <laughs> so true. <laughs> I need, I need one of those. <laughs> we all need one of those. <laughs> this, this conversation never happened, you guys. <laughs> but externally, I think the the organization, MM, uh, Men in Black, 
has a preference for secrecy even over, let's say, open-mindedness or collaboration, right? Yeah. There is this attitude that... People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Yeah, I have that with one of my even-overs here, which is upholding the mission even over honesty and relationships, because, of course, you need honesty to have good relationships. So, Kim, mm. I'm wondering what you think the organization gives up by choosing secrecy over honesty. Well, they're in a weird strategic position where they don't give up that much because they are extremely well-funded by the alien technology. Mm -hmm. That's how they support themselves. So they don't yeah. really report to the other agencies. Yeah. They have the freedom to do what they want, including to lie liberally, and nobody can ever catch them on it. Um, and so they're not... Re the, the, as an organization, what they're giving up for secrecy is probably prestige. Mm. Yeah, interesting. What about maybe an ability to collaborate with others and mm. have greater minds? That they're, yes. they're limited. That is actually a really good point, Paul. I'm forgetting about the whole relational angle because the problem, of course, of lying about everything is that you don't get to be close to people when you do that and that that's a basic human desire. And if you're so cut off from other people and you have no sense of responsibility, doesn't that eventually warp your decision-making process? It's probably very alienating over time, and I would bet that that time. would contribute to um, Kay's burnout, actually, yeah. and his lot because his burnout and his longing to be close to this woman that he knew 35 years ago. Yeah. It's also, um, to your point earlier about how the culture is a bit paternal towards the, the like, humans that they're their end work is serving I feel like this structure feeds into that paternal act because you are separate from humans you're basically not like one of them anymore you were never born you have no identity you have no family and you're so separate that the decisions that you're making are like these um disconnected like, yeah, yeah they're like non-human decisions mm -hmm. you're you're there to be separate and above it all mm -hmm which can make you feel better about everything. But over, over time, what does that do to a person? Right. And it's a bit scary because they, in this movie, they come out as generally the do-gooders, but they, they have, no one is keeping them in check. And they have a ton of power, and they're not reporting to anyone at all. So it could get out of hand very quickly. And they're monopoly. Like, you know, Jane, I actually want to get to your point about they're not allowed to talk to humankind. And one of the things we talk a lot about when we're working with teams or organizations is this idea of, who is your customer? Who mm -hmm. do you serve? And your customer, it doesn't necessarily mean the person who buys the product. You could have an internal customer, such as uh, sales and accounting. They need your numbers for the quarter. Or it could be that external customer who is um, in the store and comparing your product versus a competitor's product. And what we suggest is really important for teams is that they know their customers. So they get feedback, you have interactions, so that you can really understand what are the needs of this customer? What is evolving? What's changing? What's different? Not just who are they as, as a customer, right? Like, oh, this is a, here's a persona, here is their, you know, suburban mom looking out for their kids or their single guy out on the mm -hmm. town. But it's also understanding how are their needs and their lifestyle changing. And by cutting themselves off from the customer, they can't really talk to people, um, at, at least on an equal. There's no, there's no equal relationship there. They're actually missing out. Like, they are not able to gather that information about what their customer needs in order for them to do their job, which is protecting the universe. Yeah. 
That's Which, a really interesting point. Very good point. And it might be feeding into what you said earlier about, like, they haven't changed in years and years because they're not sensing what changes are happening around them and, re- and evolving with those. That's true. It's almost like they, they're in touch with the aliens. Mm-hmm. You know, they understand the needs of the aliens and they know all the aliens, but then they know the humans least of all. Yeah. And I think they know the aliens' needs to some extent, but I don't think they necessarily care or are responsive to them. Again, coming back to this idea of Jaded, they've seen it all before. It's just another day where aliens are trying to flee the country or trying to blow up the galaxy, whatever, right? But even even if they know what their needs are, they're not being proactive. They are a really reactive agency. And in a way, it's a, it's a very masculine culture also. Mm-hmm. I mean, there don't seem to be, until the end, any women in black. But also, this is, it, you know, it, it's a paternal kind of caring, where we keep you safe, but then you're on your own, as opposed to a more connected kind of caring, what mm. actually happens to you or each other, or having, being able, there's no room for emotions or awe or wonder or, uh, you know, relationships of any kind. All right, so here's where I get really excited, <laughs> and I want to talk about the different worldviews between J and K, right? Yes. So again, K, who is, he's the old school. He was actually the person who was there when the aliens landed in 1961. So he's been cut off in many ways from society for right. 30 years. Whereas you have J, who is just coming into this culture, this organization, and in every way possible, they really highlight that Jay is different. He is the outsider. So we'll talk about this a little bit in structure. Whereas everybody else who applies to the MIB comes from the government. They are from the Army, the Navy. They're Mm -hmm. they're top brass. They're in uniform. He comes from the NYPD, and we've seen he's a lot more street savvy, right? Mm -hmm. He is... Uh, he's on the beat. He's a beat cop. He's wearing street clothing. Mm-hmm. He is really fast and active. Uh, a little bit no nonsense. A little bit more uh, snarky than than the rest. And so dislikes authority, which is yeah. not not a theme that any of the other interviewees have. Exactly. Certainly not. They say congratulations. You're everything we've come to expect from years of government training. Yeah. The best of the best of the best, sir. <laughs> I didn't do as much justice as, as Will Smith did. Um, so I think one of the one of the stories that is going on here is bringing this new person in to really question these strategies. And you see him, you see Jay question what they're doing, right? Initially, whenever they would neuralize somebody, whenever they would wipe their memory, they would just say, like, oh, this was a government... Basically, like, oh, there there was an explosion and there was a gas leak. Uh, Go about your business, citizen, right? But when Jay gets in, he's like, this is it. This is the story that you're (laughs) telling Swamp gas? Yeah, so so he starts spinning up these great stories. He's like, no, 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 here's what actually happened, and here's how you're going to change your life for the better. Yeah, they're laced with empathy, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's in touch with, that's a great point, he's in touch with humans, and so he's, like, if we're going to lie to them, let's at least make their lives better. It's a positive spin. Yeah, exactly. So, Jay is starting to bring in this this new idea of, are these the real values that we should be embracing within the organization? Maybe we should change up and do things differently. Yeah. And, he, yeah, go ahead. And this is, we hear this all the time, when you are hiring people, what do you look for? Is it mm-hmm. culture fit? Or you'll hear people talk about culture ad. And the difference there is culture fit is more of the same. 
It is reinforcing the existing values, whereas mm -hmm. a culture fit is saying, you know, they're a little bit different, but I think that they could change or add on to the existing culture mm -hmm. in a healthy way. Yeah, yeah. the culture ed brings it, make, makes us change. Yeah. You know, in a way. Back in the mid-1950s, the government started a little underfunded agency with the simple and laughable purpose of establishing contact with the race not of this planet. Culture Ad supports diversity and inclusion much more because you're opening up the ranks for more diverse thinking and being more inclusive of that diverse thinking. Um, and yeah. also, the more you do culture fit, the more likely you just have group think. You're just building in, like, a thousand me's of just cloning a version of me and building a team of those, and it's hard to have... Even if those people are very collaborative, it's not likely that an army of me is, is going to have really innovative ideas time and time again. Exactly, and that, that becomes um, a liability for your organization at certain times. Mm -hmm. So he not only is he probably the diversity candidate when he comes in there for all the reasons Paula mentioned, but then his new recruit at the end of the movie is even more of a diversity candidate because she's the first woman in black. Yeah, good point. So he's changing, and I love that moment because he, he goes and you see him putting on his sunglasses and they're a different pair of sunglasses. Yes. I think they're supposed to be newer. It all looks kind of old to me right now. But it, The movie was sponsored by Ray-Ban and I believe what? that's like the new line of Ray-Bans. Ah, <laughs> the new line. So he's putting on the new sunglasses and he's got his, the first woman in black and off they go to go do things differently and to the, bring it into the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. Very good point, Paula. Um, Every now and then it happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so structures. Um, I'm going to run down what I have, just like in terms of the different teams that seem like they work there. So we have the two-person team that works out in the field. Um, we also have the observation deck, which is run by aliens, and it's kind of how they keep tabs on all of the different aliens that are living on Earth and disguised as humans. We also have the head honcho. Um, Rip Torn. Rip Torn. Don't know what his Agent, actual name is. Agent Z no or Z. Oh, um, there we go. Yeah. And then we have the cleanup crew that comes in and cleans up, like, alien guts and whatever else. Um, we also had a moment where there was kind of like an airport scene where there's, like, a TSA crew that was bringing new aliens in and directing them to the right place. Um, and that's about everything I have. One thing I thought was really interesting is that this this organization really doesn't have a name. It's the Men in Black. I, MIB. Yeah, MIB, but that's not like a government type name, <laughs> right? Right. It's I an mean, acronym. They 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 change their name every time. So it's INS Division Six, or we're from the Health Department. Mm. You know, and so I mean, I've never heard of a government agency that do actually doesn't have a name in there somewhere, but they don't mm. have one. I mean, their cards say MIB. Yeah. You're right, that's not a very government, it's that's not like not CIA. Like, that's not like the, the Bureau of Alien Affairs or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they're an independent agency, you guh. <laughs> no, so... so but that's... it's also men in black. I know that's oh, the traditional... True. I mean, not it great was, for diversity. Right? Well, <laughs> yeah. 19th, I mean, there is, there is a great little joke in there where... Uh, Kay introduces Jay the first time and he introduces him as like Dr. Black and, yes. and Will Smith just gives him a look like what, what's going on? So next on? time it's Dr. White. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Gives him another another look so I think that's great. Um, but no, so okay, they're, they are a government agency but not really. Like they are an independent agency and they don't report to anyone mm -hmm. because the government would just get in the way. And inevitably, people would find out about it, right? It wouldn't be mm -hmm. a secret anymore. So this is... Uh, there's actually a scene where... 
they pull uh Kay is first interviewing Jay, who is still James at that point, and he goes and he unplugs the video camera. Again, enforcing this idea that it was never here, this mm -hmm. never existed. Fifteen hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. Five hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat, and fifteen minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. It's really troublesome when you have an agency that has all of these powers, essentially unlimited powers, and yet no oversight. They report to no one. So I was wondering what you guys thought on that. What was your take? Yeah, I mean, they really do have absolute power. That was one of the things I was, you know, thinking about in terms of, of their... Um, that pretty much that is what dictates their strategy is that they can do whatever they want. And so they yeah. don't really have to have a lot of even-overs. They don't have right. to make a lot of trade-offs. Right. Of course, in the real world, that's not true. For not most true. organizations. Yeah. Not true. Most organizations have to deal with some sort of limitations. Yeah. They are responsible, maybe not to a government agency, but to the public, to yeah. their consumers, certainly to some regulations. So don't don't mm -hmm. try and get away with it. Yeah. Eventually yes. you will be caught. <laughs> yeah. You can pretend, but it's temporary. But it's, as far as as far as structures go, though, I was thinking about how there's a different a difference. They, there's the agents, but then there's all those guys in shirt sleeves wandering around. Mm -hmm. What's their career trajectory like? They're never going to get to be agents, right? No, yeah, they don't recruit from that. They that don't pool. recruit from that pool. <laughs> yeah. So they're instead looking for outside people to come mm -hmm. in and be agents. And I just wonder how that kind of works in the organization. Is that like a definitely a class thing? It's a very hierarchical and traditional organization. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier, they are recruiting from branches of the military, which are again very hierarchical traditionally, um, and. This is actually, we, we like to talk about how your structure should align with your strategy. This is a great instance of how the organization needs to change. So they're in a very dynamic environment, right? Mm -hmm. You never know what you're going to face in the field. You need to be able to think on your feet. You don't have time to call back to headquarters and find out what you should do. Right. And yet they have this very 1960s, uh, bureaucracy looking exactly and so again i think that's why it's really important that jay is bringing in this new way of being able to sense and respond what is going on in the outside world and hopefully freshen up the agency and, and get it to really think about how do we respond more effectively to what's going on in the outside world you know, now that you say that, I'm thinking about how in the scenes where he was trying out for the job and his explanation of why he shot the the little girl, that's him the actually... Tiffany. The Tiffany. When we think about, you know, culture, we often think about what gets rewarded in these cultures. Mm. And what seems to get rewarded in this culture, you totally expect it to be rule-following and bureaucracy and, you know, policy. Mm. And yet what gets rewarded is not believing the first thing you see with your eyes, but looking behind the situation and thinking about why is it this way. And I think I saw that. I th so what you just uh, what you just described reminded me of that scene. But I've seen that blueprinted over and over in the in in terms of what gets you respect inside the agency. And I think it comes down to results. Ultimately, yeah. like, can you save the day? Yeah. Are you willing to get eaten by a giant cockroach <laughs> to save the if galaxy? If that's what it takes. <laughs>
yeah, yeah results results and, and looking behind the surface. So there's a certain level of an analysis, like an objective analysis here, that, that rather than the bureaucracy and rule following is what they're looking for in their agents. Yeah. So if that comes with a certain distrust of authority, and then in this case, so be it. Yeah. Well, Agent K said himself, he's like, I had a distrust of authority. I feel the same way, even yeah. though he's been he's at retirement age now. This is a really funny paradox in itself that there would be this super bureaucratic stuck in this in the late fifties organization where that's what they want you to be, which is a much more flu be able to respond in a really more fluid way than organizations of that uh, time period generally did. Yeah. Well, the more we talk about it, the more it feels like part of what makes them so fluid is definitely that they have no one keeping them in check, but also I think they might be. They're, like, stuck in startup mode, too, because they're really working with the initial founding group. Mm-hmm. Um, Kay's partner, before Jay joins, is at retirement age. Kay is at retirement age. When they're recruiting, they interview eight people and hire one. They're not, like, continually renewing the workforce or adding new people in. It seems like a very elite, small group. And so with that, I feel like, just like you can in most smaller startups, make decisions on the fly. It's a little bit more fluid, as we've seen. Yeah. That might be partly... Contributing to that as well. That's a good example of an organization that has its fixed aspects and its fluid aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. guys who are in the TSA line, essentially, or who are just doing the day-to-day, maybe it's okay for them if they're just doing the same thing day in and day out. We don't really get a whole lot in right. their, their emotional journey as employees. Right. Um, but that is a fairly routine activity, whereas if you're out in the field, you need to be a lot more fluid in your response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, so we're kind of jumping into systems a bit. Mm-hmm. So, so systems are the piece that influence behavior on the day-to-day um, in the job. So what what um, stood out to you guys? Why don't they have a training manual? <laughs> there's, like, in their onboarding, like, there's no, like, here's all the different types of aliens, you know? And, you know, so, so at one point, Kay says to Jay, do you know what kind of alien, uh, you know, like, sugar and does this other thing? And it seems to me that Jay ought to know that. Then shouldn't there be a book somewhere? It's very on-the-job training. Like, yeah. if, you, if you actually look at his journey, everything he does is, is taught by doing. So he has to help with the birth of the squid baby, and mm-hmm. he has to go, like, fake a story to the, um, to, to the morgue attendant, right? Yeah. And then he graduates to a point where he gets his gun but it's like this teeny little cricket (laughs) and so it's a very on the job um informal training but again maybe in this really fluid environment that's Mm -hmm. that's the way that you have to learn yeah Yeah, that's what i was gonna say is partly maybe the strategy is you'll never you would never be able to put everything into a manual like maybe even their probably billions of different aliens so if they wanted to they couldn't categorize all of them and so it doesn't make sense to try to give someone a guide because no matter what they're gonna encounter something unknown on their first day so maybe that's part of their strategy then that they don't want to get anybody anchored on that there is a Mm -hmm. right way or a wrong way they just want to keep people responding fluidly to the to the situation before them yeah i think when you look at recruiting recruiting is also this really interesting methodology right so we actually the the first time we see recruiting it is again k interviewing jay and finding out oh you were actually able to outrun this one type of alien Mm -hmm. then he wipes his memory because it's all too much 
for Jay to take in. But then he takes him out to dinner, and he's like, hey, you should you should come, right? Like, yeah. here's the chat. So one is he knows that in some way he can he can do it. That's part of the recruiting, that he is that he's tough enough, that he's fast enough, that he's right. maybe crazy enough. And then, so to your point, Kim, you were saying during that he, he shoots little Tiffany, right? And that's part of the test. I My favorite scene in possibly the whole movie is when he is filling out the forms. So when he, when he goes mm-hmm. to the office, uh, again, military brass are there and they hand everybody papers and and pencils and tell them to fill this out. Well, everybody's in these really uncomfortable chairs, and so everybody's really struggling to figure out, like, a flat surface to write on. And Will Smith's character is the only one who sees the flat table in the middle of the room and drags it screeching across the entire room in order to be able to write on it. And I just, I laughed every time. But again, long story to illustrate that he thinks differently. No, mm-hmm. everyone else has given him dirty looks for making such a scene, but he's the one who is able to solve problems. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and that's what innovate. they're hiring for. Yeah. yeah. That's the, that's the paying attention to the situation rather than following the rules. Yeah, it also seems to I think it connects a little bit into so one of the even overs that I wrote down that we didn't talk about earlier is that they really strive for um it's like ease of completing the job even over flash like they have all these alien technology but they don't have laser guns and like things that rewind time anything like that they just have a few simple things that they use on the on the job and same with the car until you hit like a certain button it's just a simple car they wear these suits that are pretty practical and i think partly when they're recruiting they're looking for practical solutions too like will smith's solution is not this flashy like hey can i get a surface here or how are we supposed to do this or asking any questions he's like i see a table i'm going to pull the table over i'll write on the table it's fine you know all this keeps putting me in mind of that conversation that we sometimes get into when we talk about uh, with people who are from doing innovation labs in companies mm-hmm. which is should we when we want to populate our innovation lab should we hire from inside the company where they already know the ins and outs of what we're doing mm. and then teach them to be innovative? Or should we find innovative people and teach them the industry and the ways of the company? So what's the right answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, what these guys are clearly doing is they're, choos- they're choosing the, let's take the innovative people and then mm. teach them the mil- milieu. Yeah. Because the, the assumption is that that's easier to teach them, those problem solving, that ability to sense the environment and what is right and to do the right thing in the environment. Yeah. So... We've covered recruiting, and essentially the he's passed all the tests, right? So then the next thing that we have happen is essentially onboarding. Mm-hmm. He gets his first experiences with the culture. And I think the real first experience is when Kay goes to get coffee, and there's a bunch of aliens hanging out, talking, talking shop in the coffee room, which is a bit of a shock for Jay. But I think that's a really interesting example of how do you start to integrate somebody into a culture? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. that. So they immediately show him the office, which has aliens working in it. Um, so there must be a bit of recruiting in terms of the aliens that they run across, too, where they bring them into the company. But aside from that, they also give him his first suit, and they immediately tell him, this is the last suit you'll ever wear. And I think it's just, like, getting you prepared for the fact that you might have to jump into an alien's body in order to complete a mission. You will probably die. And we're going to erase your identity, too. You are no one. You might die on this job, et cetera. Like, day one, second one. You need to learn that. Yeah. And the last suit also is, like, and you're going to be frozen in time. True. 
Yeah. But they don't. He he does. He says, "I make this suit look good," and I think he does. <laughs> and he he's does got the big. shoulder pads in a big, in a much yeah. bigger way than Kay does. Mm. <laughs> so I, I didn't notice that. Again, I was just amazed those shoulder, by those ninety shoulders pads, by the, the skinny, the skinny ties and everything. So, uh, so yeah. So he is recruited. He's he's onboarded. He loses his identity. He learns over time. He's given again birthing the squid and getting mm-hmm. his first gun like these are parts of the onboarding process and it's almost like a ritual mm-hmm. when yeah. you are onboarding somebody within your own company yeah yeah like he it's really interesting it's so on the job like he he uses the little cricket is that what it's called the cricket yeah. gun he gets no, and then cricket. And then immediately afterwards, Kay tells him, we don't discharge our weapons in public. But it's like, that is a rule that you might want to tell someone when you hand them the gun, <laughs> not after they've shot it for the first time. When were you going to tell him? That's what I kept thinking was that, like, of course it makes for better movies when you don't tell right. him. But it was like, kid, wouldn't they give him just a small book? Just a little <laughs> Well, they gave him a small gun. <laughs> no, so one of, one of the things we like to talk about is this idea of safe to fail. When mm-hmm. you are trying something for the first time, whether that's as a team or an individual, don't assume that you're going to do it right. Assume something is going to go wrong. So if that's the case, you want to put yourself in a position where even if everything goes wrong, it's not going to irreparably harm you or the company overall. Mm. And when you have a flashy thing, there's not that much, you know, you can do harm to property. But you don't do that much harm to a human. I was, so far, right? I was surprised that nobody neuralized themselves accidentally. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. man. Um, the other the other system that I thought supported our earlier conversation about um, how this company has no, like, you have no legacy at this company. You you give up pretty much, or you, you get all the control, but you get no legacy afterwards. Um, I think from moment one, they start to erase ego, too. They're like, this will be the last suit you wear. You We're going to take away your name. And at one point, he's like, well, you brought me in for a reason. You obviously like, I don't know, my brains or my skills, whatever he says. Skills. Yes, he said you respect the skills. You respect the skills. And Agent K says to him, the skills mean shit. Like, that doesn't mean anything. He he says your skills mean dick. Just want to get the... (laughs) getting everything wrong (laughs) um but you get the idea is they're immediately trying to erase that ego and then from moment on from that moment on they keep calling him he asks them not to call him kid or junior he's like i want to be part of the team and every scene afterwards they call him a new (laughs) name it's like kid bud junior etc sport sport Sport. totally true i think it's really important to call out that all of this so once he's once he agrees to be in the Men in Black, it takes place over two days. Now these are Carillion days of thirty-seven hours each, but like <laughs> this is a really intense onboarding mm-hmm. session, right? Think yeah. about the last time you had a new job. And I don't know. This sounds like my first day at Nobel, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing or. We're not we're not fighting aliens. Just I guess just for okay. Our there listeners. were a lot fewer entrails at the end of the day, but still. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious. Do you think it's better to ease somebody into a situation or just throw them in and see how they adapt? Mm. Mm. You know, I mean, it's interesting because when well, as we've been talking about thinking about this so much as in startup culture, because especially at the early stages, you know, everybody does have to do everything, and everybody's going to have to do things they don't know how to do, and that's going to have to be okay. And either you are, and people tend to either be very jazzed by that or be very put off by that. So I suppose, you know, getting it right at hiring is important. But um, 
I think that there is such a thing as too much information and too much too much to parse through in front, and I think it does have to be kind of matched to where they're at. I mean, because they were a police officer, as opposed to perhaps being some of the military guys who mm-hmm. wouldn't be so accustomed to dealing with the public and criminals, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, they have, you know, have a, a, a clear enemy. Right. Then, you know, maybe that maps onto the skills he was going to need on those first days well enough yeah. that he could kind of figure it out. But if you imagine maybe he got, like, you know, if you got, like, the Green Beret in there on the first day, and then they would have to go through a lot of cognitive processes to figure out how to act in this agent role that, you know, Will Smith would not have had to go through, and that that might end up being too much there for you. You could overdo the amount of information you have to absorb at once. Yeah, and I think there's also, there's always, like, two parts to onboarding. One is how you approach it and how you're supporting their learning, but then that person is going to make a mistake, like shoot the gun, and how you respond to that is really important too. So if you're throwing someone in with no rules and you want them to just figure it out on the job, you have to have an expectation that things are going to go wrong and that's okay and they can iterate from there. Exactly. You need a flashy thing. Yeah. So we've <laughs> really go- hung up on that. <laughs> we've gone through the whole recruiting and onboarding process, but I think there's a part of the employee experience, which is what we're talking about, that a lot of companies and organizations forget about, which is... What happens when people are ready to move on? And we actually Mm -hmm. see two examples of that in this movie. We see Kay's partner in the very beginning of the movie, and then we see Kay himself at the end of the film. Mm -hmm. And it almost feels like there's a ritual, and both of them start by saying, you know, look at the stars. They're not just stars anymore. So I I think it's really interesting, and maybe wanted to hear what you guys have seen in terms of how do you offboard somebody or what what's the right thing to do when somebody leaves an organization mm-hmm. yeah it's a really good question well I think that the interesting thing about the two scenarios that we saw where they were they were by choice and there was once again no bureaucracy it was like I'm done erase my memory I'm out and there was no they didn't have to check in with anyone else they didn't check in with the home office it just happened um which I do think is healthy letting people take control of like when they're ready to retire rather than deciding I think it's time for us to find a replacement or try to to like train someone up for the replacement for this role it's such an interesting question because I also kept asking myself why don't they have like a pool of pre-qualified applicants and then they just who they they say okay you're gonna be good then we uh, neuralize you again and then when it's time they bring them back in you know instead of just doing it fresh every time but Hmm. well we don't we know that they don't, in a way, oh, because God, because true. It's complexity because they've they do neuralize like they have neuralized Jay. Mm-hmm. We, we see that, and we hear we know that they've neuralized again the the morgue attendant. Like mm-hmm. we don't even know how many times, right? Yes. And so, in some way, they are always recruiting. Like you do mm-hmm. talk to an interesting person, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you can come give them some tests yeah. and come circle back later. Because that's how I, that's that would be what my recommendation. But as far as the people yeah. ending their career, mm-hmm. um, it does seem rather sudden. Like they just one day they're out, mm-hmm. and you wonder, you know, have they talk, spoken about this aloud that they're considering making this move? You know, like earlier on, Kay was looking at the at was at the overhead satellite view of his lady love, right? right? Also a little creepy, mm-hmm. and um, and he was kind of embarrassed about the whole deal. He was putting it all away, mm-hmm. trying to get it out of there before anybody saw. But would that be like a heads up? I think we're going to lose this guy. Maybe we got to think about this. You know, they might. So back to like that 
I, I think they started their company and then they didn't really hire in a bunch of new people. So it might just, they're hitting the point where the people that originally started the company are ready for retirement. And so now they're yeah. suddenly having to figure out what happens when someone leaves. That's true. Maybe they don't people. have a policy yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this is the first round of retirees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really important that, one, he K trains his replacement and he, and he says that, but then now... Jay finds himself in the position essentially where Kay was. And so when he's looking for his new partner, Kay's replacement, he does go to the morgue assistant who also has, like like we said at the very beginning of this, she is a diversity hire, certainly, mm -hmm. but she brings a new set of eyes, a fresh way of looking at things to the organization. And Not to mention a really interesting set of skills as yes. the coroner. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. Thank you, coroner. That's the word I was looking for. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I think that going forward in the organization, and it's we're not looking at men in black two or three or anything like that. God, no. um, but but I think that this is an organization which is now ready. It has the right people in place to start evolving and to start looking at things differently, to be more open to, to new situations and to be more dynamic in how it responds to challenges. Definitely. Yeah, and it was fun to see that play out a little bit on screen towards the end of the movie. Um, anything else in systems? So if not, as we're starting to wrap up, um, we ask this question at the end of every episode. What advice would you give this organization? So assuming, assuming that they're going to be a little bit more open-minded now that Jay and his, his new partner are on the scene, one of the things that we teach our clients is this idea of customer sensing, mm -hmm. right? Of being able to find out what's changing in your environment, what's changing your customer needs. And it's essentially a, a meeting where we just ask three questions. We ask, first of all, what do you see as changing? Second of all, we say, why do you think that's changing? What are the root causes behind that? And then three, what do we as an organization have to do about it? So I think even by asking those questions and figuring out how they can start to reinvent the organization, they'll be able to make a lot of progress. Yeah, I really like that. That's a great suggestion. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think that we were talking earlier about the sensing element being missing from this. So it's unclear who's running this organization, you know, who's the leadership beyond Rip Torn, mm -hmm. Agent Z. It seems as though there's probably somebody for a higher place. So um, I, my, but my recommendations are more like, let's put, let's work on the onboarding process a little bit so that maybe <laughs> fewer bridges get destroyed. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> seems reasonable. That seems reasonable. And also, we don't know that everybody, all the agents worked out, you know? Right. So it, it seems like it's a very high-risk proposition to just sort of bring people on and throw them in. Um, so I'd like to see a little bit. I'd like to see a little bit more onboarding. And in that case, maybe a little bit of an employee experience map. Mm, I love that. Do you want to talk about, do you want me to talk about oh, that? Yeah, okay. talk about it. Um, employee experience map is a tool that we made for HR leaders or leaders in general, and it kind of walks you through start to finish what, what happens to your employee when they join the company, even when you're first recruiting, when you're posting an ad for a position. And then as they're getting onboarded, um, once they're fully onboarded, like how does the mentorship process go? How do they mentor others? 
we talked about succession planning a little bit, like how do they then level people up so that they can take their role? Um, and eventually, how do you offboard them and then keep those alumni as part of your network as well so that you can continue to recruit from alumni referrals, et cetera? So it's a tool that you can fill in and use to kind of map out your current experience and, and retro, do a retrospective on it and potentially level it up a bit. Um, if you want that, you can reach out to us at heart at nobl.io and we'll be happy to send you over a template. Yeah, good addition. Um, so my suggestion would be, because I'm like a little nervous by how much control this company has and how little oversight there is, I think it would be great if they could think about how it, obviously right now they have good people running it and they're making generally good decisions, but what happens when, since right now you're seeing a lot of people retire at MIB, what happens when agent said retires and you have a new leader and that leader potentially does the wrong thing with power? How do you build in some checks and balances to make sure that things don't go completely wrong the next time around? Great question. I think that's also a really great point of the potential for knowledge loss if all of these people mm. are retiring, they they have built-in knowledge. How do you share that? How do you start to transfer that information? Oh, that's a great point. To the next generation. If they don't have a training manual, then who? How are you going to be able to identify the Arquillians of the future? It's true. <laughs> it's a, it's a really great point, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Um, this has been Work of Fiction. Check us out at nobl.io or tell us what movie you'd like us to review next um, at heart at nobl.io. Thank you.